0: Good morning. So throughout my relatively brief time in ministry, uh, just observing, discussing, investing in, trying to serve people, uh, in addition to, to my own heart, right, kind of untangling what is inside of me, I found that there's two primary pitfalls that we often fall into that are kind of looming around the air of Christianity, Right? And, and it's helpful if you think of it perhaps as a balance beam. Right, So maintaining balance perfectly in the middle is a healthy understanding of the gospel. It's a healthy understanding of the sacrifice of Christ and what it means to live out the gospel. But on each side of this balance beam, we have two, two different extremes. And these are pitfalls that we're all to some degree inclined to fall into. Right? So, on one extreme, if we were to say at the, the left side of the balance beam, we have this pitfall that we are accepted by God based on our own works based on our performance, right? This is, this is the camp that we often refer to as legalism, right? This idea that God loves me because I can do good things. God loves me because I've done enough good works or more good works than bad works so that at the end of the day, I can be good enough to be adopted into the family of God, right? This is the pitfall that prevents people from ever coming to church. Right? I was getting my hair cut the other day by someone and I invited them to church and their immediate response was, oh, no, 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 I'm too broken. Like I've got too much stuff, right? She thought that in order to be qualified to, a, to attend church, you have to have some sort of your own goodness, your own ability, your own morality, right? This is also the pitfall that it really keeps people into a life of perpetual sin right? If, if you've lived a lifestyle of continual sin, this is the pitfall that says, you know, I'm just too broken. God could never love me. That mistake was just too big. God could never forgive me. I've just had such a hard time with sin that I could never, I could never go to church. I could never be forgiven. I could never be loved. I could never be accepted. I could never be approved then on a micro level, right, even within the church here, we have this pitfall as well. This is the pitfall that prevents us from confessing sin to one another, right? Because we have this sense of, well, my social status here within the church is based on my goodness. So I can't be honest and transparent and vulnerable about my sin and my brokenness, right? Because then people would think I don't belong in the church or they wouldn't accept me within the church. It's this idea that you have to be good enough. You have to earn God's love. And this type of pitfall, uh, pitfall creates a dysfunctional community and a burdened people, right? I mean, this is, this is what makes us just feel heavy, All the time, like we've got to earn and earn and earn. And and it makes us dysfunctional as a church, right? Because we put on our masks and we come here with our masks and we have to feel as if we have it all together and we've got it all worked out. And I don't really have any big sins. I don't really have any issues because you'll only accept me if I'm performing well, right? But then we have this other pitfall on the other side, the other extreme, And this is the pitfall that says I can confess faith in Jesus and arrogantly have a confidence in that confession, but completely deny the commands of God, the lifestyle that God would have me live and do what I want, when I want, how I want, with no consideration for how the Bible tells me how to live right it's it's if we're earning over here it's the opposite right this is a grace 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 i can do anything i want i can spend my money how i want i can go where i want i can talk how i want i can watch what i want but yeah i believe in god Right, I think we most often see this uh, in celebrities as the easiest target, right? Is it's the professional athlete that maybe looks up to the sky after a touchdown or scores a goal with the cross tattoo, but, but they have a lifestyle that is not at all repentant or in line with biblical principles and the way that God would have them to live. Right? Maybe it's the actor who won, a, won an Oscar for a just terrible, filthy movie that dishonors God, but what do they do when they win? I just wanna, I wanna thank God, right? right? Maybe, it's, maybe it's Carrie Underwood who wants Jesus to take the wheel in one song, but then she doesn't know his last name in the other song. Right? And I know you guys are like, don't mess with Carrie, I'm about to walk out. And listen, I'm sorry, I know I offended you. I almost didn't do it. But if you wanna talk about it, email me rnap@northwaychurch.net. at northwaychurch.net, okay? And I will happily take your complaint, right? But we have this dichotomy, this, yeah, of course, I'm confessing God, but I'm gonna do whatever I want, whenever I want, with no regard to how God's asking me to live and commanding me to live. And then we have this balance, right? We have this healthy balance that's right in the middle. And of these two pitfalls, James is addressing the latter today. We're gonna be over here today. We're gonna be dealing with this camp is where James wants us to go. And before we get there, I just wanna say this isn't a passage of condemnation or judgment, right? This is a passage that creates clarity. My, My prayer for you today has been that in whatever spiritual capacity you leave here, that you leave with clarity knowing where you are. Right? I think one of the most tragic things is for someone to live their whole life with a confession of faith only to have the rug pulled out from them when they stand before God and go, that was not a legitimate faith. That wasn't a saving faith. That would be a tragedy. And so this morning we're going to talk through that. As I was thinking about this pitfall I came across a publication. Uh, It's really a hyperbole in form of cartoon. And it looks like this. It's advertising for the modern local church right and the advertisement boasts we have 24 percent fewer commitments home of the 7.5 percent tithe with only 15 minute sermons only 45 minute worship services and only eight commandments you get to pick which eight you want just three spiritual laws and only an 800 year millennium They say it's everything you've wanted in a church and less, right? Now, listen, I understand that that when that new Sundays opens, all of you guys are going to be going for the 15 minute sermon and you're going to be sending your kid or your spouse out 10 minutes early to go across the street and get a table. Okay. But we're going to say that's the exception, not the, the general rule. And the sad thing is that while this is hyperbole, it's not too far off from the ideal church for a lot of people that confess Christianity, right? I want a place where there's no stepping on toes, no feeding of the mind, no opening of the heart. I don't want real commitment. I really just want convenience and I want personal autonomy. I mean, I wanna attend a church, but I don't wanna to have, to, have to deal with my, my crud when I leave, right? I want to I be a part of it, but I don't want to commit to anything right now. Well, I'm just really busy. Well, we, we do attend church, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving. I mean, why would I do that, right? And this is the type of mindset that depends on grace, not for the forgiveness of sins, not to overcome our sin, but to excuse our sin. It asks the question, how much can I get away with? What's the smallest amount required of me? And this is the type of thinking that James goes to battle with today in chapter two, right? He's aiming to wake you up, to wake us all up with good doctrine from the stupor of passive Christianity, which he argues is really not Christianity at all. He begins by asking the question in James 2, 14, He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have good works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Now, this is not a small question, right? This is something that has been highly debated amongst theologians for decades is what type of faith is saving faith? Do I have it? Is my faith saving faith in the end ultimately? Is my faith empty? How can I know? Right? These are incredibly healthy, helpful, and eternal questions that we should desire to answer. And they're not easy questions, not easy questions at all. Another way we could ask this question is this, does it matter what I do? Does it matter what I do, right? We could say, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was younger, I've been baptized. I have a confession in Jesus. Of course, I believe in God. And with that in my back pocket, with that get out of hell card in my back pocket, I did that, I have the picture from my baptism. Does it now matter how I live my life, right? That's a big question. I mean, I did that, so now do I have to obey now? Is it required that I obey now for salvation? Or is that kind of a check the box and now I can do what I want type of thing? This is a big question. Of course, as believers, we believe that God's word is the inerrant and perfect authority in our lives. And so we always have to go to God's word to answer these types of questions. But that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have problems for us in it. Right? This is what I mean. We're finite creatures. We're fallible. We have a cultural bias. We have all kinds of junk and messiness that we bring into the Word when we read it. And so sometimes we come across passages in the Bible and they're just difficult for us. This is one of those. Let me show you why it's difficult. James is asking the question, can I have faith without works? Can my faith without work save me? Is that sufficient? More practically, does it matter what I do? The Bible's hard because depending on where you go, you get totally different answers, right? Let's just be honest about that. I'm I'm not gonna try and hide that from you, okay? You could go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and it says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not by grace works so that no one can boast Romans 3:28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law Romans 11:6 but it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace Right? So you can keep these passages in mind, but then when we go to James chapter 2 today in 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see the issue here some of you guys the legalists, are like man I love the book of James faith without works right and then some of you guys are like man I really love Ephesians I just want to kind of do what I want to do and it's by grace and it's not by works and I can do whatever I want and I like that but which is it right we're seeing two different things it actually gets harder in the passage because if you look at Romans 4 you see Paul talk about Abraham in this way listen What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right, so we have Paul here in Romans 4 saying that Abraham believed and that was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his works, otherwise he would boast. We have Paul in Romans and Ephesians saying it's by faith. It can't be by works. But then we have James saying faith apart from works is not true faith. And then look what James says about Abraham. Abraham. 21 through 23, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. He actually cites that other passage and we're going, well, what is it here? I mean, James is telling me that faith without works is dead. Paul is telling me that faith with works is legalism and faith with works, right? Like I, they're separate. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? James is arguing, maybe, is he arguing against Paul? Is he contradicting or refuting Paul? Is he, is he trying to... to dispute the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by adding in some good works and muddying the water. By the way, Martin Luther hated the book of James because of this, right? Because of his background coming through the Reformation. There was a problem with it. Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by faith plus works? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, right? That's the easy answer. Always just yes. I want you to see that these two camps, right, that James and that Paul, they're not contradicting or competing or disputing one another, but they work in harmony with one another to help protect us from the two pitfalls and they keep us in a healthy tension, right? A healthy balance on the beam in how we live out the gospel. James is not correcting or contradicting Paul, but bringing balance to his teaching. And he's really correcting a misuse of Paul's teaching, right? Which by the way, that exists in every one of us. We need this because every single one of us has a lean, right? Some of us lean towards trying to earn God's love. That's why when we perform well, when we volunteer and we lead a home team and I check my Bible plan, I feel like, oh, God really loves me. But then when I miss a day in the word or I mess up. We feel like God doesn't love me, right? Because we naturally feel as if God's relationship to us is dependent on our works rather than the work of Christ, right? Some of us kind of lean that way functionally, but then some of us kind of lean the other way, right? And we, and we minimize our sin and we minimize the, the call to obey. And we say, nah, that, that's not really for me. You know, it's grace, I'm fine. And sometimes... We lean both ways somehow simultaneously in different areas of our lives, right? Where we can get really legalistic about some things, but then in other areas, like, right? Oh no, it's not a big deal. But we all have a lean. This is why we need the entire Bible, right? It's so good. It's why you can't just live in Ephesians, but you also can't just live in James. It's why we need the entire counsel of God's word because it takes the whole word to create a whole Christian as it's been said. We need James and we need Ephesians and together they bring harmony. James 1.17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above. James is not introducing a new theology here of works-based salvation. He acknowledged in chapter one, it's all from God and he brings balance here in chapter two. And by the way, Paul does this for his own teaching. right? Paul recognized that the doctrine of grace could be abused. That's why in Romans 6, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, both Paul in Romans 6 and James here in chapter 2 are warning us of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It says this, it's a little bit long, but you guys are, I know you can hang with me. You can read it on the screen. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And then he contrasts that. He says, "'Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble.'" It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. See, if you're confessing faith in Jesus today and you have no interest in battling sin, in looking more like Jesus, in loving people well, in dying to yourself, then hear the the plea of James today as he says, that type of faith will not save you. That confession is a false sense of security. That type of faith is not saving faith. And again, this isn't a condemnation from James or a judgment from James. I think this is a warning Listen, if you've spent your whole life confessing Jesus, but there's no life change, there's no desire for life change, there's no sensitivity to sin, there's no desire to love others well, that's not saving faith. That type of faith is dead. And I get, maybe this feels a little harsh. And you go, James, this is a little bit extreme. And James anticipates that type of pushback. In verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Right, the pushback here is that James is saying, surely someone will try and separate the two. Surely someone will say, well, well faith and works, you can separate them, right? You can have faith without works. Sure, surely someone in this room is pushing back going, oh, come on. I mean, I, I can have confessing belief in God without works. And that's, that's enough, right? And what James is saying is that true faith makes good works inevitable, not optional. Right? James is saying you can't separate the two. It's a package deal. True faith is always followed by good works. He gives us the case study, Abraham. Abraham was saved by his faith and belief in God. He knew that he could never earn God's love. Abraham knew he could never do enough to earn God's favor, that his works alone were insufficient. And Abraham had faith. And yet that true faith did something in his heart so that when God said, sacrifice your son, Abraham said, yes. Abraham had a faith, but the faith was willing to work. That's true faith, right? And and, and if, if you read this, maybe your first thought was my first thought and I go, well, come on, that's Abraham, right? I mean, like Abraham was like a hero. He saw things that I never saw. He had experiences with God that I haven't had. I mean, he's a patriarch. You can't compare me to Abraham. Of course, Abraham had faith, right? That's the easy answer. Well, yeah, but that was him. And maybe we even say, listen, Stephen, I'm just a teenager. I mean, come on, I'm 16, I'm 15, I'm 14. You can't expect me to have the faith that Abraham had, right? Or maybe you say, I'm a baby believer. Like I've only been a Christian for like a year. You can't expect me to kind of have the kind of faith that works out. Like I'm just putting my toe in the water. Right? We, we, We can very easily try and justify ourselves, which should be scary to us. But again, James is ahead of us. He's anticipating this type of argument, right? Because he's saying, well, wait wait a minute. It wasn't just Abraham, right? Who's kind of a hero of the faith. Maybe Abraham's on the top shelf and we're going, I can't be like Abraham. So then James gives us another example. In verse 25, he says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers... And sent them out by another way? So so James is using uh, an Old Testament passage in Joshua chapter 2. It's this story of Israelites, God's people, they send spies into Jericho to kind of check out the land that was one day promised to be theirs, right? And so they go and these spies know that if they get caught, they're likely dead, that they're in enemy territory. They're in foreign lands, scoping the land out that God would give to them. And if they get caught, they're in trouble. And so as they go through, they start ducking the enemies, right? And in this effort to not be seen, they duck into Rahab, a prostitute's house, right? Now Rahab didn't know anything about God other than the, the rumors that she had heard about the God of Israel. She hadn't been discipled. She didn't have any formal training. She hadn't been to seminary. She hadn't experienced any big miracles, no burning bush, nothing like that. She was at the bottom of the totem pole in the social ladder, right? I mean, this is someone with very little training, very little knowledge of God, not a whole lot of theological understanding and a resume of immorality. But she had heard about this God of Israel. And she had faith in him. So that when these spies came into her house, she hid them. When she was asked, hey, are those men that we heard are running around town, are they here? She lied. She said no. And she did it knowing that it would cost her her life potentially if she got caught. That it would cost her family their life potentially if she got caught. And yet Rahab, this prostitute, had faith that acted, faith that brought about works. And James mentions this to protect us from saying, well, oh, no, that was Abraham. You can't expect me to, to actually live out my faith. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adolescent, right? I mean, I'm just, a, well, I've got all these circumstances and And James says, listen, Rahab the prostitute lived out her faith. His point is that someone who knew very little about God at the bottom of the ladder with a long resume of immorality was justified by her faith because her faith was one that worked. But it's not just James, right? Sometimes James gets a bad rap for being the the one that's always stepping on our toes and a little bit hard-nosed. But look look at the rest of Scripture. I mean, I just grabbed a few verses that I want to show you. I just have a list for you. It says, Hebrews 4.11, right? You can consider this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. First Timothy 3:16, "But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Philippians 3:10 through11 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection. Right, so just think about this short list of verses and think about the words we have here. Strive, strain, self-denial, following, fleeing, Pursuing, fighting, sharing and suffering, by any means possible. Are these words that mark our spiritual lives? These are all verbs, right? These are all words of action. Is your spiritual life marked by this? A striving, a straining, self-denial, following, battling, pursuing, fighting, sharing, and suffering. By any means possible, I'll follow Jesus. I know for myself sometimes words would be more like relax, settle, just coast. Wander when it's convenient. Peace with sin, not fighting sin. Self-fulfillment, not self-denial, right? Those are words that oftentimes really surround us. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. You see, the grace of Christ is very much against laboring to earn God's love, to earn our way into heaven. That's called legalism. And it's an insult to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But it's cheap grace that puts us in cruise control in this idea of passive Christianity, not really worried about the life that we live. And that also is an insult to the cross of Christ. my hope for you is that you would just be able to leave here with clarity and know where you are. Is your faith a dead faith without works? James makes it clear that if your faith is merely intellectual, that's not a saving faith, right? James two nineteen. he says, even the demons believe. If you only know God in your head, but not in your heart, that type of faith is not a saving faith. He goes on to say, if your faith is merely emotional, that is also not a saving faith. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons have an emotional response to God, right? Faith that is merely intellectual is not saving. Faith that is merely emotional is not saving. James is telling us that, Saving faith involves willful obedience. Not earning, but effort. Not perfection, but obedience. Of course, we are saved by faith alone, but a truly saving faith will never be alone. It's always accompanied by a God-honoring effort and works of righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he was a philosopher in the 1800s and a theologian. And one memorable instance, he told a parable about a place called Duckland. Okay, this is what he said. He said, it was Sunday morning and all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they com- comfortably squatted. When all were well seated and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to his pulpit, opened the duck Bible, and read, Ducks, you have wings, and with wings you can fly. Like eagles, you can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was marvelous. Elevating duck scripture. And thus all the ducks quacked their assent approval and gave a hearty duck amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and they waddled all the way home. You see these poor ducks, they waddled in and they waddled out of church, but they never did fly as they were created to do. Because their faith was only in their head, but not in their heart. And it's sad because a duck waddling is nothing very special, right? But a duck flying is a beautiful and glorious sight. He went on to explain that, think of ducks as having two wings. One wing is faith and faith alone. But this wing of faith, it creates and inspires the movement of the second wing good works. And as one wing begins to move, this wing of faith, the other will inevitably follow. And that's good works. And that together is a glorious sight and a beautiful sight of something that was once waddling is now flying. And so I would just ask you today, are you going to waddle? Or are you going to fly? Is your faith accompanied by good work or is it a dead faith?